welcome to another episode of The Drip, the podcast for four academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics, all the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or each other's homes or when we're each where else in our own homes because we are still trying to keep ourselves, our loved ones, and even people we don't like safe and healthy. And RIP Beverly Cleary. I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Adriana. I'm Adriana Estel. I teach English and American Studies at Carleton College. Um, that's all we were saying, right? I um, It's been a long day. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Crystal. <laughs> I'm Crystal Moten, a public historian who works in a museum in Washington, D.C. Yay! Thank you, Todd. My name is Todd Lawrence. I teach African-American literature and culture, folklore, and cultural studies at the University of St. Thomas. And and I am also a friend of Claudia Rankin. Yes. Yes. It's not going to be posted publicly, but Todd just had a chance to talk to Claudia Rankin and we can verify it having watched it that I, yes, yes. It was really cute she's, because it starts off in, you know, he's, did you call her Claudia first? And, oh no, she called you. She Todd. called me Todd right off the bat. Right. And then I said, can I call you Claudia? And then and she, she was said, like, oh, oh, I didn't mean to. Right. Yeah. You're like, please presume, please presume. Yes. And <laughs> she has sent, we, we have had email correspondence. Wow. Because we're, what? Because we're friends. Because you're friends. <laughs> also, you're Claudia, you're we're friends. Don't worry, Claudia, I'll write you back. I'm going to write you back this weekend. <laughs> Yes, because of course she's listening. So yay. She is she listening. She might be listening. That's what friends do. You. Since yes. you are listening, maybe we'll tell you what we're actually talking about today. <laughs> so today we are super excited to be digging into our first romance novel on the show. That we ended up randomly picking a young adult romance novel. Because y'all don't have to worry about me blushing through the show. And Todd's mom, if you're listening, don't worry. <laughs> Hi, Mrs. Lawrence. Thank you for listening. All right. So we're discussing Josephine today by Beverly Jenkins, who is a groundbreaking legendary author in the genre of Black historical romance novels. Jenkins is an American author from Detroit who writes historical and contemporary romance novels with a particular focus on 19th century African-American life. She's a prolific writer, having written about 40 novels. She is the recipient of the 2017 Romance Writers of America Nora Roberts Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as the 2016 Romantic Times Reviewers Choice Award for Historical Romance. She's been nominated for the NAACP Image Award in Literature, actually for Josephine. And she describes herself as writing romance novels that are in the context of little known black history. And so before we begin, as always, spoiler alert, just a reminder that we discuss our books, we discuss everything. As you do know or should know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. Although, let's be honest, I think <laughs> we all kind of knew who Josephine's going to like end up with by like page 50. So, you know, whatever. Not you know who she wasn't going to end up with. We didn't quite know that the other dashing bow was going to come into the storyline until he just That's appeared. True. definitely knew she wasn't going to end up with George, though. Yeah, so. That's right. That's George. Right. George blew it right from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. um, I first heard about Beverly Jenkins on this Code Switch episode about Black historical romance novels. And Cran Grisby Bates, who's one of the hosts of the show, talks about how one of the critiques of like this kind of genre of books, as well as a show like Bridgerton, which some of you might have watched, is this notion of like, how could Black people have had time for love and romance in the midst of being colonized and enslaved? Um, and of course, we just discussed The Prophets, which is like all about Black love, right, during time of um, enslavement. And in the same episode, they interviewed this writer and scholar, Carol Bell, who talks about how sort of romance novels um, in in sort of itself, it's like a marginalized genre, but it's actually one of the genres that in some ways subsidizes other you know, mm -hmm. genres because it's actually a profitable genre. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then she talks about how, you know, so you have like romance novels, you know, the genre of romance novels. And within that, like black romance authors who are like somewhat marginalized, but then you have like black historical romance novels, which is just like, you know, even more of this like subset. Uh, but she says that it's like a really important genre. And this is her quote. Uh, black people didn't arrive in American society in 1960s. 
part of the erasure of black people in historical fiction and historical romance in particular is because of this idea of, well, romance is escape and it's fun. And so much of American history with regard to black people is ugly. Therefore, we don't want to think about it. Right. So then they kind of talk about this notion of how, you know, if you're writing like black historical romance, like you have to kind of walk a fine line between sort of fantasy and reality because you can't just like completely ignore, right, sort of like the yeah. historical context in which black folks are loving and, you know, loving each other. Um, so that's kind of a long intro, but I wanted to kind of say that just because that's how I learned about Beverly Jenkins. And I thought that would be just kind of a good broad opening for me to ask about what you all thought about kind of this genre in particular, and obviously Josephine as an example of a genre of black historical romance. Well, before, before I get to talking about what I thought about this particular genre in this particular book, um, your intro um, regarding kind of how could black folks have time for joy or anything other than struggle in moments of, you know, intense trauma. I think of the, I think of the time we're currently living in now, yeah. kind of the, the twin pandemics moment, and yet, and still you see black black folks, black musicians, you know, with the versus battles. Mm -hmm. And so you can't understand life in a pandemic, life in twin pandemics without also knowing that the versus battles have been a way to cope with that, right? Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's just like a prime example of, of how it has to be both in, right? Struggle and joy, right? Mm -hmm. Love and pain. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, so I was thinking about that as you were introducing, but in terms of, the genre and this book, you know, I don't read a lot of um, romance. And so I don't have a lot to kind of um, build my thoughts around beyond kind of how this story unfolds and uh, the, con the historical context in which it unfolds. And um, so so that's that's how I'm kind of thinking about about the book. But um, I don't have a lot of familiarity with uh, the romance genre as a whole. Can I, I would like to just add to what you were saying, Crystal, because I, I too, that question about how would there be time for love and romance in these historical moments, I think, you know, it made me think that kind of means that the romance novel has a role to play in sort of filling in that thing which we maybe can't imagine, but probably was was present and was real. I mean, I mean, we know people were, we know people had love for each other. We know, I mean, we're all here. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the reason, mm -hmm. the result of that love, you know, and, and, and uh, so I think we have to sort of assume that that was present. And so um, this, in the same way that, you know, Afrofuturists or Black speculative texts can look back and kind of offer this sort of um, filling in of something that has been left out or using this sort of like something like a technology to explain something in a different way. I mean, these rom a romance novel like this, or a novel like this, looks back at a moment when, historically speaking, as we are trained about these moments, we don't really learn about the sort of personhood and humanity and and all. Like we, I think most people, you ask them, was there love and romance on a plantation, for example? They would say no, mm -hmm. but. There, there had to be something, right? I mean, there had to be something. Like you said, we just read the prophets, which showed us that, which gave us a, a, a vision of something that maybe we hadn't seen in a book before. So I think there's a place for this as, you know, to kind of give us a sense and let us imagine a world in which these free Black people are living together in, you know, this little town mm -hmm. and things seem to be going pretty well, right? Like that doesn't mean that there wasn't you know, uh, terrible, you know, racial violence and all that stuff around. But for them, their lives is not dominated by that. And I think there could be lots of Black people in history who might have had that experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, not only that, but add to that that the romance novel isn't known for its realism, right? right. Even historical romance novels are mm. not about actually like, um, uh, uh, playing history as it actually happened. They, mm. I think the historical romance genre like is interested in kind of reanimating history, yes, but in giving kind of different potential plot lines to people who wouldn't have had those plot lines. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I've read a ton of romance and that's our gap here in the group. I think we all acknowledge we haven't really read a lot of romance, but the little bit that I've read about romance fiction is, I mean, you've got, um, women being feminists in time periods where there wouldn't have been that kind of language, right? You have um, men willing to like give up particular ways of masculinity 
um, because of the love that they feel. So they, I, I think of these fictions and, you know, Josephine really kind of uh, amplifies that for me as ones that make certain feelings possible. Um, you know, so thinking about that, right? Like it um, allows us to inhabit black love, not just see it as a thing that happened, but rather mm -hmm. to actually kind of feel it ourselves to the degree that as readers, we, we can inhabit those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I think too, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think too, you know, this book for me was interesting because I think maybe someone mentioned this when we were kind of texting back and forth about the book as we were reading. There are times when I sort of like forget that this is about black people. Like they're just people, you know, and they're just it, living together and dealing with the, you know, ups and downs of life. And, um, and there's something kind of refreshing about that. Um, it, not, this is not to sort of take away from the sort of specific experience of them as black people in this time and place, but their experience or their daily lives not dominated by that, or they don't talk about, I mean, the first time, and part of it is because of sort of the absence of whiteness, right? Because the first time mm -hmm. a white, there's, it's said that there was a mixed audience. It doesn't even say there was white person present is right before the end of the book. For, so for the majority of the book, you have black people interacting with each other in their own communities and white people are not present. The, mm -hmm. the threats are the war, right. yes, and the and and dread uh, whatever his name is, dread, dread Jones Reed or, or something. Dread Reed, yeah, dread Reed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, he's really the that's the threat. He's a black person, mm -hmm. so you know there's not this sort of looming white threat that they're constantly sort of thinking about. And in a way, that's a kind of liberation, right? I guess maybe yeah. is what I might say is that's a mm -hmm. kind of liberated kind of um, way of being for black people not having to think about whiteness all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, which is interesting, right? Cause it's happening like pre-Civil War era. Mm -hmm. So like there's, you know, like Bell was like somebody who escaped enslavement and like, right. So that, right. it's like, obviously there, they're talking about the Rebs and like the, a lot of the men half fought or are fighting in the Civil War. So it's like all there, but yes, right. It's still this like sort of all black community where like all the like little good and bad things that happen are all being done by black people, right? <laughs> so like the yeah, thief yeah. in the book is like, you know, uh, the book. I think the sheriff might be white because I think um, Indigo, which I also read, which is another book by mm -hmm. Beverly Jenkins, is also set in the same community, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I think the sheriff is white, but obviously uh, Dreadview gets caught by Bert, right? right, right. <laughs> As a by the sheriff. Uh, but like the healer is black, right? So, like, mm -hmm. you know, so I think it's, um, I also really love that too, right? That it was this, they were just like having just like, you know, Josephine 17. She's like growing up. She's like figuring mm -hmm. out, she's figured out, I guess, actually what she already wants to be, which is like really impressive for a 17 year old. Uh, right. And she like has her own business. So like, that's like really impressive too. But yeah, I think that was one of my favorite parts of the book too. Right. That it was just this like all black community that mm -hmm. in some ways, like you didn't have to keep stating that. So I think right. that's how I understood right. the comment Todd that like, yeah. weren't like, thinking about like their blackness necessarily all the time either because they didn't have to keep asserting that in right. terms of like whiteness or white threats. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, even to um to speak to Adriana's comment too, I mean, there I there is a way in which this is a kind of fantasy, I think, because, you know, you just mentioned this, Anita too, that I mean, there are all these um, veterans who fought in the war, their their bodies are like they're injured and they're right. sort of hobbling around on canes and crutches and things like that. And there are um, escaped slaves, fugitive slaves who are living in the community as well. Um, no, but nobody seems to be uh, dominated by sort of trauma, the trauma of violence and mm -hmm. all that. So, I mean, that's probably a bit of a fantasy, right? I think mm -hmm. that it would be realistic to believe that there would be some sort of trauma in this community that people were dealing with. And I thought of, you know, just sort of comparing it um, to Beloved, for example, because like in Beloved, all the characters, uh, especially Seta, are like totally um, dominated by the trauma of what's happened mm -hmm. to them in the past. And these folks seem somehow freed from it, um, which, you know, is, is like, um, it's, it makes it easier to read. It makes it easier to sort of like get into this group of people and experience. I suppose it, um, some people might argue that that makes it sort of less important or something, but I don't know. I, I think there's a way in which this is just as important and it offers some, a different kind of reading experience about black experience that I think is mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, useful. I, I love getting to read about a teenage young black woman who like has her own hair salon 
and who, mm-hmm. who gets to choose between two men, right? Because that's what the book comes down to. You know, mm-hmm. she has one suitor who's totally into like the dream of her, maybe not the reality of her, but the dream of her. And she has one, uh, one suitor who um, like has known her since she was a kid and has to figure out who she is as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and both mm-hmm. of those I think are, are like, like, you know, classic kind of tropes, um, but uh, that she gets to be the center of that and, um, get carried away in a in an actual balloon <laughs> right i right. love the whole hot air balloon scene <laughs> yes, nice yes. Touch. yeah yeah <laughs> and that's what i was thinking of in regards to um you know the palpable feeling of trauma not being present in the novel perhaps it's because you know we're from the perspective most of the time of josephine who's a young woman who's seeing these members of her community experience these traumatic um experiences but maybe she not necessarily herself um being experienced in that and so when we're thinking about okay well then what is you know what is what is Josephine processing in her mind, right? It's, you know, that her father is away, that she has to make sure her shop is up to snuff, that, you know, a woman whose hair she thought was beautiful didn't pay her, <laughs> right. you know? Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Right, right, yeah. And then, you know, like managing her best friend who is also trying to, you know, uh, stake out her own independence. And so we get the things that are priorities for Josephine, both in terms of her life and her emotions. Um, and so it, it differs from, you know, what other folks may be experiencing. And I think there is like a certain level of safety because they're in an all black community, right? So mm-hmm. in some ways I feel like some of it is like maybe glossing over sort of maybe trauma yeah. in some ways, but I also feel like they are safer in many ways, right? Because they're in this like ensconced mm-hmm. kind of community of black folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna um, add to what you were saying, Crystal, about these, um, you know, the, these two uh, moments in Josephine's life uh, that are these moments of trouble, right? That mm-hmm. have to get resolved because mm-hmm. they are really interesting and they're not about the romance. And the one with Trudy is, you know, yes. is Trudy gonna become the sort of young woman who will get kind of um, thrust out, right? Who will create right. a scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she worries about like, it, oh my gosh, you know, but Trudy is engaged. Like, why is she flirting with Dread Reed so, right? And all of this kind of like, ah. And right. then with the woman who gets her hair done and doesn't pay her, she eventually finds out that the woman right. is like just utterly impoverished. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and in some mm-hmm. ways it's a moment that cements Adam's worth as a suitor because yeah. he helps her. And in fact, I think he encourages her, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's, I, I can't remember who was the lead on it, but like basically yeah. they decide to help out, mm-hmm. um, to bring food, to to get Josephine's mother involved. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right, right, um, yeah. Yeah, I did. I did want to kind of think about this notion, Todd, about like maybe whether this is like a bit of a fantasy, right? That they weren't dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. But I feel like romance novels in general seem like a fantasy. Like, who has romance? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like the one like Adam and Joseph. Oh, hold on. Like, oh, oh, no, no, that's a little that I am totally like in a hot air balloon, and you know, that's often that is a frequent complaint. Within our household, that I am not. <laughs> You're not like Adam. <laughs> no, I, I try. But, but I think that's a little bit of point. like unreality to like begin with in this genre, right? Of well, like, that, but they, I think that's the point of romance novels yeah. that, in right. fact, Adam is the man you're never ever gonna find right. in reality. Right. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, like uh-huh. most most men are. You know, again, you know, you can think about this book as responding to a sort of. A, a society in which men grow up understanding masculinity mm-hmm. in a really limited way. Right. And right. Um, there's, if you are sort of openly romantic with your, with your lady and, and your boys see it, the first thing they're going to do is make fun of you about it. Right. Like so we kind of grow up being sort of conditioned not to do that or to keep it private, mm-hmm. you know? And um, yeah. So when you asked that question, I mean, I, I was thinking about, well, why, why romance? Why do, you know, um, we were talking before we started to record about how this is a very popular genre amongst women. And I think that's a reason is, it, as Adriana said, is that it depicts something that many men have trouble with, that many men have trouble sort of finding that part of themselves, you know? And it, it yeah. And so to be the woman speaking on why women like romance novels. <laughs> 
What are you saying? What are you trying to say? Nothing. What are you trying to say? I knew this was well, going to happen today. You're like, as a dude, I heard my woman, you know, <laughs> podcaster talk about this. So right. let me tell you what this woman said. So yeah, go ahead. I'm going to just be quiet for the rest of the show. Then. No. How about that? Oh, no, you won't. It's all right. We're not worried about that. <laughs> That was such an easy <laughs> joke. I just could not not do it. Let me tell you what Crystal's gonna say. <laughs> I, you know, I was just gonna flip the perspective in terms of you know women, um, you know, maybe missing some romance in their lives, but they 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 read the book um, as a way to experience that, which they miss. So it's not, it's just basically the same thing you're saying, Ty, but a different way, not, not censoring what women desire from the book, not, and and not kind of focusing on the lack, right? Because the book is full of want, well, the books tell stories of want and desire and, you know, all these fantasies that women want, you know, so that's what, how I was going to phrase it. The the one um, so so I really haven't read that much about romance novels like just caveat, um, but the one thing that kind of filtered into my education in American studies is uh, Judith Federley's uh, um, resisting the romance, which is this mm. really well known study published. Oh Lord, I want to say eighties. Don't quote me. Um, we'll find it and put it on on the blog. Um, mm-hmm. But she basically does this big ethnography um, with romance readers. And it's an age in which literary criticism is basically trying to figure out, wait, like, so there's this text and we've always just talked about the text. You mean to say the readers have power? Wait, what? The readers do stuff? So she's making this big Mm -hmm. case for how um, romance, which is thought of as this um, utterly unintellectual, unintereresting, Unuseful mm-hmm. mm-hmm. genre is mm-hmm. actually a really active genre for romance readers. That they um, that they read it not just to be passive readers, but mm-hmm. to engage in um, active thinking about their lives and what they want in their desires, as Crystal was saying. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense to me, and I think you know I thought too. I think we might have talked about this in um, on the show before. I can't remember if we have or not, but. You know, I've thought about this in terms of television watching, you know, sort of prestige television and um, the kind of shows that are sort of considered serious, you know, shows, you know, mm-hmm. like The Wire and things like that, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, versus the other kinds of shows like, uh, what do you like, Pretty Little Liars or whatever, like these other mm-hmm. shows mm-hmm. that um, that are, they get gendered, right? And they get gendered yeah. based upon this show is more serious because it has more sort of like cerebral, you know, like yes, you have to, yes. it's harder to figure out or whatever. Right. Like, right. And, um, and so, I mean, it makes sense to me that also, you know, book genres would be mm-hmm. the same way. Um, and having said that, I mean, one thing I thought of as a reader was like, Oh, this wasn't really written for me. Or I, I don't know if it's fair to say that, but I, I mm-hmm. sort of thought like this wasn't written for me. And yet I am finding it delightful. I mean, I think, <laughs> there are a lot of ways that I didn't like I didn't read it and be like oh she's attacking men or something like that like I didn't there was no feeling like that it was just mm-hmm. like oh this is nice and I was also writing in the margins like George come on man make us look bad but I feel like she's not attacking men especially because Adam is like this like hot hunky guy who's like yes I'm gonna support you I'm gonna build you this shop and I want you to be your fierce independent self right I mean I feel mm-hmm. like it's sort of this and like even uh Bert right <laughs> like mm-hmm. who sort of comes through in the end and like stands up to his mama and like chooses to mm-hmm. over his mom right so I feel like there are these like definitely ways in which I'm like men come up pretty well in this book and the first good I mean the first uh kind of example of I don't know if I positive masculinity. I don't know how to describe that, but like her father and her brothers who are off fighting for the war and, and her admiration for them. And so this is definitely not a male bashing no. mm-hmm. um, book. And in fact, I mean, it's, yeah, I would say it's far from that. So more men read Beverly Jenkins. Yeah, right. <laughs> maybe, maybe. By the end of the novel, George is dating yeah. someone else, right? In fact, like, right. she, yeah, yeah, she doesn't break up with him. He breaks up with her. Um, right. And, and like in some ways the the novel gives us this possibility of saying oh it's not that um 
you know, he wasn't feminist enough and he's a failed man. It's just that she was, they weren't the right match. Right. Because because the right found the right woman. Exactly. There are women who don't want to be their own business people. Like, want to submit to a man like George. I right. I want to find the passage where he's telling her what the, the characteristics of the other woman. And she's oh, like, yes. oh, yes. Um, and then also as or after we do that, I did want to come back to this um, crystal like your sort of one of your critiques was kind of thinking about how even though it's like all about women, kind of this notion that it still revolves a lot around men. Oh, I found it, but I okay. have it on Kindle, so, so I can't give okay. you a page number, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, yeah, do you want me to do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Just maybe while you're reading it, we'll like find the page number. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I met a young woman over at the church where I'm going to be working. She's yes. the secretary there. And oh, well, God. she's real nice. Just as lovely and gracious as you. But where you're boisterous, she's quiet. Where you're adventurous, she's cautious. We suit well. Much better than you and I will. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I can stand out to you. Well, that stood out to me because all that that whole line just brought me back to the air balloon ride yes. where they were basically arguing about, you know, no, you're going to die. She's like, no, I'm not going to die. But if I do die, I'm going to die on an air balloon. And that's fun anyway. <laughs> and so it's like how, how fundamentally different their thinking was. And you could see that so clearly in, you know, his rationale for saying this, this didn't work. I mean, it's like total total opposites and so that just stood out to me and the, but also what stood out to me was the fact that he um he came to that realization and he didn't string her along about it he realized okay we are not compatible but i met someone else who i am compatible with and here's why and here's why i need to break it off i thought that was very admirable of him yeah sure. and that was um 199 and i also thought it was admirable of her to kind of be like, wait, this dude is basically dumping me, but she takes it fairly gracefully. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, gracefully, she yells hallelujah yeah. so loudly yeah, that because poor before Adam thinks that like he's she's been asked to get married or something. So it leads us to that right. last kind of like you know um, cliffhanger where yes. Adam's running around pissed off, going, "Damn it, I lost her! I lost her! I lost her!" <laughs> well, I was gonna just but say, really? like, obviously, yeah. she thought it was gonna go differently because on one ninety eight, right? He sort of uh, like right before what Adriana read, um, mm -hmm. he sort of says that he got the job, and you know. And then he's like, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to pick my words. And Joe says, take your time. Joe didn't want to rush her because the sooner he declared his intention towards her, the sooner she would have to tell him his feelings weren't returned. And obviously she doesn't get the chance because like his feelings changed. And so, yeah. So yeah. That, that yeah. was like an interesting way of like resolving the idea that she had to make a choice. I thought that was like an interesting choice yeah. to make. Yeah. That's true. From her. Although she still... Mm -hmm did have to choose Adam, right? Like there was still like that sort of mm -hmm. that, that you had to like give him. But I did think it was interesting that he basically just removed himself from the equation. Right. Was very convenient. It was very yeah. convenient. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And yeah. then once that happens, like once she accepts uh, Adam's like courting, then you get like what, four pages of like intense, but chaste. Right. <laughs> She's like, like 17. Heat. So. Chased heat. And like I was thinking <laughs> I was thinking because um there's this there's this passage that struck me on page 217 where they're kissing and Adam says Adam thinks to himself so he says, the, male the, male, the male in Adam wanted to do more <laughs> than kiss her, much more. But the man in him Knew doing so would be wrong. Joe wasn't a fast girl. She wasn't innocent. And because of that, pressuring her wouldn't be fair. Adam contented himself with feeling, uh, feeding, excuse me, on her thrilling kisses. He loved her enough to wait. Being a gentleman was difficult, however, and she was as tempting as a piece of sweet potato pie. So to make certain... He didn't overstep his bounds. He reluctantly drew away from her, her lips. Upon doing so, he saw that she had uh, had her eyes closed. He kissed each delicately. We have to stop. Oh. Like, you find someone who tempts you as much as sweet potato pie, you <laughs> stick to them. That is chaste heat, my friends. And, like, I love how it's, like, you know, like, it's sort of pushing against this, 
this notion of like what men are supposed to do, but also it's like totally about men are this way, right? Like he had to resist mm-hmm. true, true. his essential qualities, his like natural and, inclinations, right? right. So, and there's this, there's a sense that you know that it's hinted that not hinted, it's pretty explicit. Like she doesn't want to stop, right? But he has to he has to make the decision for both of them because he yeah. knows. He, he'll pass that that point beyond which he can control himself because he is a man. <laughs> but I, yeah, I mean, I think this, um, I read, like I said, I read Indigo as well. And she's, I mean, Josephine's only 17, right? So she is technically yes. a minor. And they talk about how they have to wait till she's 18 till I get married. Mm-hmm. But in Indigo, um, I think she's 25. The, um, okay. The, but it's actually the same story. Like she's never been kissed. She's like really chaste. And the guy that she, you know, is like romancing her is like super experienced because um, he's like been with courtesans in Paris and all of this. Right. So, so I just find this like really fascinating sort of uh, portrayal of like these young women who are who are like fierce and independent and like super strong and have like passionate opinions and like don't back down. But also never been kissed or super chaste. Like don't know but what this is about. So like the man has to be like, I'm sorry. Like, especially in like the other one yeah. where it's like much more, they go much but she, further, right? You but can't, like, right? Like a, a right. woman can't have any experience right. whatsoever or she's immediately like, like unfit. Trudy. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, Trudy, right, exactly. Yeah. 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 Because Trudy is the example of what can happen, even right. if nothing happens, but if there are just rumors right. about right. your being, about you being in a room with a man by yourself, you don't have to be doing anything with a man. You're just in right. that room with him by yourself. So is this it's like, actually, no, oh, I, sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say like, is this like that thing that's happening in this book where the book wants to push against these mm-hmm. things, but it actually reinforces them, right? Mm-hmm. Like it wants to show us uh, an individual, you know, self-empowered woman who has her own, you know, business and all of that. But it also it, it reinforces these notions of women's sexuality needing, like, needing to be chased, needing yeah. to be, you know, naive and inexperienced. Otherwise, no men will want you. Yeah, because I think I'm, she's still writing within the bounds of the historical realism that right. she's right. Okay. Right. I was just gonna say, I think it would be interesting to read a more contemporary uh, romance mm-hmm. novel mm-hmm. and see what are the possibilities for female desire there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also wondered if it was just like romance genre in general. Like, I don't know if all women are always in like in, in like heteronormative romance novels, yeah. whether the women are always like less experienced and that's like part of the like setup of like romance novels. But I don't know, maybe it is like the historical part of it. I think it's gonna be the historical part of it and I'm just guessing, but the thing is it is, I mean, Anita, you mentioned this, right? It's a super popular genre. There are so many subgenres of romance novels. So right, like you, I mean, there are queer romance novels, of course. That's there right. are, yeah, there's there's gonna be a romance novel for any um, kink that you might have, I would guess, mm-hmm. right? But you can, can so you can have a, a romance novel that sort of breaks the um, historical sort of expectations, right? Like you could write a novel where Josephine had played around a little bit. That's true. And what I mean, and still he's like, oh, you played around. Okay, cool. That's right. fine. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. th- that, right. you know, so I'm sure that happened. <laughs> well, we talked about that other character who, who's it, Lily or what's her name? Uh, yeah, Lily. Yeah, Lily. Lily right? mm-hmm. Like, who, who's hinted as is like being a maybe? Like as a fast one, was it not her name? Yes, I yes, I think it was Libby. Sorry, Libby. Right, right. You know, like one of the things I said is like, how can all the women be so chaste if the men have all this experience? Like clearly, right. the men are like having experience with women, right? And so, mm-hmm. so I think it is right. But she is then seen as this like. I don't know. But what? isn't mostly because she wants to, she wants a rich man. Yeah, she wants to marry a rich man. Yeah. And all these women end up with rich men anyway. I mean, That's Earth's also rich the other and thing. Adam's rich. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's bad because she's looking for it. The other two <laughs> are surprised by it, right? Like they're, oh, Adam's they, really they rich. Adam despite the fact that he's yeah. rich. <laughs> right. How right. fortunate that he is also super wealthy. Yes, just just icing on the cake. <laughs> yeah, and no. now, honestly, it's like similar in Indigo because like she falls for this guy who's like super wealthy actually like he owns like a mansion and like he has all these you know and it's and she's she's like i think like middle class right i mean i don't know is that okay. kind of how we would characterize josephine's family like middle class um, i guess so yeah ish and yeah. so i mean i don't know and they uh, have a house right they yeah have, they have a house mm-hmm. and, and they're better off than that woman who couldn't like pay for her hair right mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like class differences mm-hmm. um so i also found that kind of interesting right that they're sort of a um kind of in like all these like i mean i guess this is not romance genre but i think of like jane austen right like it's like basically 
all this worry about like marrying mm-hmm. well or marrying up or mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Kind of similar in Pride and Prejudice, right? She like falls for mm-hmm. this like soup. Just happens to be that he's like super rich, <laughs> mm-hmm. like who she ends up with, right? Mm-hmm. So, well, is it that it's not really a fantasy if you fall for the perfect guy, but he lives in a box or something? <laughs> you know, like, like that's or, like shares the same class status as you. Y- yeah, yeah. So. Oh wait, you just oh you're the same as me. Oh, cool. <laughs> 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 it's not like sweeping romance if it's not like breaking some sort of like barrier i suppose right and so right well i guess i'm just sort of like i i need to find uh some of these romance novels that adriana is talking about because i i was thinking like how would this look i mean this would be so much different if this were queer mm-hmm. like even just queering in some ways you know if there were some character in here mm-hmm. that kind of mm-hmm. went against the game against right. the grain and sort of push back against all this sort of properness right um, the proper kind of expectations and social standards and conventions right. are part of what establishes the sort of stability of the community in the book True. right and okay. it could it feels like it could sort of push it to be even more exciting if those were being pushed against a little bit more mm-hmm. and i think what mm-hmm. we're what we're describing is that it's like this you could it's a little bit elastic you know you can push against these um these conventions but only so far right and then it's kind of straining against it but i would love to see it kind of busted open again like what if trudy and joe decided like oh maybe Mm -hmm. we like each other or something like that Mm -hmm. and they eloped which I mm-hmm. probably couldn't, I don't know if they could mm-hmm. load, but. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question, like, you know, to post, if we had a conversation with Beverly Jenkins, you know, how would she rewrite the books written in this era in like 2021, mm-hmm. given, you know, mm-hmm. where we are in contemporary society? Like, would she, you know, choose the same storyline? Like, how would she elasticize the story a, a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is maybe mm-hmm. like, um, we didn't quite get to, but Crystal, I did want to, maybe this is actually good way to think about it because i did didn't want to lose this whole thing about when you said right it's like the strong community of women but it still like revolves around for example the male soldier so do you want to say a little bit more about that kind of your it's like it's feminist in some ways but it's still kind of constrained yeah i mean that's what i that's the main thought that i was having that even there's there are very many parts of this book that kind of expands what we think is possible for you know black women in the and you know, during the Civil War era, although um, there's a woman, a real black woman hairdresser named Eliza Potter, who writes mm-hmm. her own autobiography, and she's going around being a traveling hairdresser in the 1850s. And so the possibility in, of this happening, like you know, that's a real black woman. But I was just, cons- I was just, I wouldn't say concerned. I was just interested in exploring the fact that we have this strong community of black women, but still they are responding to the veterans who you know come to the community and then their their lives then begin to revolve around oh let's go volunteer with the veterans um and i think we see josephine um you know still trying to still trying to you know have her own life and tend to the things in her life but it's very much revolving around this community of men who end up coming to the community and and maybe if they yeah if they didn't come we wouldn't have George the character but we mm-hmm. would still have Adam because mm-hmm. Adam comes and he's not a part of that group but so I was just interested in exploring what you all thought about that mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really good way to put it Crystal that um, you know it's in some ways we can think of it as a narrative technique right that like yes in that time period it would make sense that there would be groups of veterans who needed to go places to to heal up right. So what happens if we introduce this kind of chaotic group into the midst of this community? So you have a community that's stable, right, and boring, and then you introduce people, and then that introduces drama. And so we get both George and we get Dread, right? And we get all those initial scenes where... um, all the women are going to help out and there's lots of flirting, right? Like, and we kind of get the sense that the whole community is excited about all this flirting that can now happen. And then it leads into like these various kinds of plot points with Dread uh, Dread and Trudy. Boy, those Mm -hmm. names together are tough to say. (laughs) (laughs) Can I, I want to put in in a word for Dread because I feel like Dread gets like, the short end of the stick of this book, like he steals you don't even get a whole to... bunch of stuff from Trudy's house. Like, yeah, yeah, but we don't they, know why. You know, we don't know why. Like, he's he's gagged when it, when when Bert catches him, <laughs> and 
apparently like takes him around to show him to everyone. Like, hey, look what I look who I caught, right? Goes to everyone's house. He's gagged. He can't even uh, can't even say why he did it. And he's just and why is his name got to be Dread? Like I I kept thinking of Dread Scott. It's like why are you calling? Look, I was wondering that. Is is like is like Dread a really common name in in that time period? I don't know. Maybe she looked for real historical examples like Dread Dread. Eliza Potter was a real head. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it kind of messed me up a little bit, and I was like, "Yeah, no, I agree." I, I, I kept thinking they were Dred Scott. And I'm like, "No, that's not." Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, that's that's such a, a such a um, important, you know, and recognizable name to use. But anyway, yeah. I just wish that he would have gotten a little bit more. Um, I know he's not essential to the plot necessarily, but I was just sort of like, "Why would he do that?" I mean, there's no no a little more of, character development. Yeah, yeah, because I <laughs> want to know why. Yeah. He because I feel like I mean, the one woman who does right, like remember the like the woman who like shorts just Josephine and like says right, right. things. We it turns out we find that out. it was like improv, you know. So I, yeah. I agree. Like I think it would have been easy enough to like give him just like a backstory that maybe made sense because he was sort of this. I mean, it was partly in there for Bert to show off that he was like a manly man, and right. I feel like that was the right. only reason for right. why we had Dread Reeves stealing things in the first place. So I feel like it was also like a plot device. But you're right. I it feel is. like it could have been easy enough to like, I mean, it would be interesting, right? Kind of to thinking about, I don't know if he was like formerly enslaved and like left to join the troops or like, right. was, you know, maybe he was trying to like free people he loved he, or like, I don't there's know. Any, yeah, there's any number of reasons why yeah. you could kind of throw in there. Like maybe he was resentful of that community or something because he came, he didn't ever feel like he could fit in there or something like yeah. that. He didn't have any other mm-hmm. options. Okay, this- Todd, you can't reinvent the story. <laughs> That man comes into the community and the way they talk about him in the first chapter is, okay, I've got it on my page oh. 14. His name okay. was Dread Reed and he was by far the handsomest man in attendance. He had dark velvet brown skin and a thin mustache that seemed to add an air of danger to his face. Ooh, <laughs> air of <so>, danger. <laughs> I mean, they're coding him as danger, yes, definitely. Yes. But also, like, um, then a couple pages later, Trudy was mooning over Dread as if he were a dessert. <laughs> Sweet potato pie, perhaps. Can go, can go both ways. You know, and I was Man. thinking of Milky Way, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh man um, so yeah so anyway uh no i i agree with you though todd i feel like it could have been easy enough to like just add a paragraph where he wasn't yes. dragged and as he was being dragged off by bert he could be like but i only did this because my mama is enslaved and i need to free <laughs> right. i'm know. trying to buy my mama free exactly, yeah. exactly. which yeah. would be within the like time period of like well absolutely like, absolutely yeah. so or we could just, you know, say that from what we know, he probably, maybe he had a background as a womanizer too. I mean, we don't know. Like anything, any part of anything could have been possible. But he was stealing things. I guess we were like, why is he stealing things? That was but funny. stealing things, though, also, but he also took advantage of Trudy's kindness toward him in terms of wanting to get to know. He took advantage of the fact that she was willing to invite him over while her mom was gone. So there's some manipulation right there. Well, I guess, yeah, and I guess he sort of represents like the uh, the possibility, the possible danger mm-hmm. of really handsome men <laughs> who are, sweet. you know what I'm saying? Like, well, because like um, handsome men. <laughs> well, well, uh, you know, uh, Adam is like also that, right? And that's the thing that she's mm-hmm. not sure about with him is like. He's been with these other women. Is he going to be true oh, to right, me? Right, right. Like, you know, he's super handsome and silky-tongued and all that. And so mm-hmm. I don't know if I can trust him. And right. Dredd is sort of an example of that because he's yeah. super handsome and That's silky-tongued right. and he's a bad guy. Right. You know, so I, I could see, mm-hmm. like, that kind of comparison, but mm-hmm. I still I still would push, like, I guess I like things to be tied up in the end and that's like one you're like we don't know why dread is doing what yeah. he's doing <laughs> right. yeah. not not tied up and gagged but like <laughs> but tied the ends tied up i feel like the other person who was a bit of like a stereotype was bert's mom right yes yeah. like stereotype of this like strong mom yeah. who like you know whatever. overbearing, overbearing. overbearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I, like, the other person who i felt like needed like a little bit of like um with redemption which yeah. yeah. she yeah. did get some nuance because didn't we find out that she was kind of a little bit promiscuous in her earlier days right. yeah. so, she didn't admit to it though she didn't admit to you you're right yeah. she didn't admit to yeah. it maybe the trauma of like being uh, 
chastised for that. Yes, that's right. right. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I just want, you know, we've said a lot of things. I think we've said a lot of things that are praising and we've said some things that are kind of a little bit critical. And But I do want to emphasize that I really did enjoy reading this book, no matter those criticisms. I I got went through it really quickly. I liked it. I was like reading it, you know, like, oh, this, guess what? Oh, George, I was talking to it, you know, and Lucia's like, what are you yeah. talking about? I was like, I'm, talk- I'm talking about Josephine. This, this book is great. Yeah, and so it. yeah, it was, and I think, um, you know, part of like if, if romance is supposed to be fun and escapist, I definitely think this book fit that. Yes, right? yes, like yes, yes. book to yes. read. Um, and I think you know, I was reading it like la- last week when the Atlanta shootings happened, and especially mm. at that time, it was actually like a really yeah. good. Mm-hmm. And to just read about like women, right, and to read about right. like women of color and sort of like mm-hmm. how the of like they're not being traumatized was kind of actually really lovely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there were definitely, and I'm just gonna read this passage because it made me laugh when I read it before but definitely weren't things that made me blush but there were definitely things that made me giggle um so this is on page 42 and this is um when um um Josephine like meets meets quote-unquote meets Adam and Adam doesn't recognize her right um so she says and this is uh okay 42 Joe felt something come over her that she had never felt before George made her flutter but this feeling was deeper stronger somehow it was like comparing the wind from the wings of a butterfly to that of the mighty wings of a red-tailed hawk <laughs> i love it <laughs> i mean think of how romance writers have to like and especially for this for the ya level yeah. like have to think about how to talk about desire right without yeah. being trite and cliche without yeah. being um, vulgar or or like right. too kind of i don't know like moist right like you don't want <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, hot chase. That's that's what I was talking about. Those four pages, right? Once they once they're courting, they got to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time, and the only thing they got to work with is kissing. And so it's got to be, you know what I'm saying? Like it's got to be sort of like really yeah. sort of drawn out and pulled yeah. out and stretched out. Interestingly enough, in the adult version in Indigo, they do everything other than penetrative sex, and so which is like interesting oh. to me, like before oh, marriage. Okay, like yeah, so it was like really oh. interesting to me, like what's what was considered still like allowable right on marriage context but yeah and only like her uh, her receiving oral sex and so i was like oh that's fascinating yeah no i feel like that was really interesting but obviously yes she's only 17 so not that 17 year olds can't have oral sex you can do whatever you want (laughs) (laughs) we're not judging we're not judging. Okay, I want to ask. I want to ask one more question about this. This sort of genre. Maybe this be because, a final question. Go for it, Todd. Okay, because I'm trying to sort of think through this. So, if are we sort of settling on this this book as a a kind of for escapism for fun? Um, it is, you know, trying to do something as a a text that engages a historical moment and maybe fills in this part of the story of those folks. You know, I mean, thinking as a person who's from the Midwest, for example, and from small town, um, you know, from history, you know, family comes from, you know, rural black township. um, It's good to see this represented. Um, But then when I I was thinking of when I compare it to um, Blanche on the Lamb, for example, when we read Blanche on the Lamb and talked about Blanche on the Lamb, we talked a lot about its critiques, its social critiques, right? We're not talking about that here very much. In fact, we're sort of talking about this as being pretty conservative in terms of its engagement with, uh, and of course it's in the uh, 19th century. Um, So I guess I just want to just sort of like one final revision of of that comparison. I mean, as a kind of, as genre fiction i'm trying to think of another category of genre fiction which doesn't do that because i think even crime fiction like when i argue in favor of genre fiction i'm always saying like you should read you know donald goins because donald goins is profane and offensive and all these sort of things but he offers a very very striking critique of capitalism or you know um or blanche on the lamb read those books right because they offer this like really, really important, unique, and I think really useful cr- critique, uh, social critique that comes from a working class black woman, right? A working class black domestic. What would you say about this book? Or is that not, that's not the point? I think two things, right? Like, I mean, maybe that's not the point, but I kind of feel like in some ways, because none of us re- have read broadly in the mm-hmm. category of romance novels, like, I don't know that we can say how this 
as a black yeah. romance novel is like speaking back to the genre of romance okay. novels that are more okay. white. So I think there's That's that. Fair. But I think this idea of like having this mostly non-traumatic sort of black joyful community in itself is sort of a critique and in itself is sort of you know, sort of saying that like black folks have loved and laughed and been silly teenagers and like all mm -hmm. throughout right sort of their history in the US and I think that in itself honestly is maybe not I don't know if it's critique or just a commentary on the fact that like th these are all possibilities of for black folks that's that's how I read it at least yeah that's yeah fair. and just compare that to the hate you give which within the first chapter right we suddenly had death right we had a a, a you know like a, a dear friend killed by the police um there it was a way like and that that book I think um you know, we have a whole episode on it, um, you know, so y'all can go there. But, uh, you know, I think we talked a lot about how there's this um, both possibility for critique that happens, but also then this foreclosure that, that happens for critique in part because of um, the way in which Black death is centered. Um, and with here, like, I agree with Anita, like, I think we'd have to read a lot more widely to, like, know what the mm -hmm. possibilities for, um, uh, for romance are as a genre. Um, but I've been thinking about this a lot too, uh, Todd, because you br you've brought it up a couple of times, you know, in our recent podcast. And I, I'm starting to think like these genre fictions, they look really conservative from the outside because they're kind of like sonnets. They have this shape, this form that is always going to play out in more or less the same way, right? They're like, we were talking about it with... Um, I, I, it wasn't Blanche on the Lamb, I can't remember what, but we were talking about how like there are these expectations for how they end, for example, or for the rules that like, um, you know, the genre is gonna kind of advance by, the novel's gonna advance by. But within that sonnet shape, there's such a lot of room for for contention and uh, for um, parody and for subversion. And I guess like that's what I'd want to read more for in the romance novel genre. Just like where's the subversion? And here, you know, Josephine, um, the, the fact that they end the novel. Wait, oh, now I'm like stuck at the beginning of the novel. But um, with the whole, you know, they're getting married, and the line they use is, "I love you, wooden head," she says to him, and "I love you too, pest." So mm -hmm. there's a, a, like, even within, like, they get married. That's so romance novel. But they're getting married with this expectation that already discursively, you know, it's not going to be uh, a marriage that fits the social norms of the day. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and the only, the only thing that I would um, kind of add is that, you know, in this, in this novel, we do see the conservative elements, but it is pushing back against some of those elements. And I think it's, I mean, I think we have to be able to see all of the, the, the full spectrum of, you know, possibility, both black life at its radical, most radical moments, and then also black life when it's kind of conforming to, uh, you know, a norm, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what it is, right? We're not all radical and progressive all the time. Sometimes our lives are existing within the confines of, you know, what is actually practically possible, and we can only push back in the ways that we can. And I think it's important to yeah. read fiction or, you know, books that speak to that as we read broadly about Black life and Black experiences. I really love that point, Crystal. And I, I wanted to mention the free produce um, movement at some point during the podcast, because I love the way that's woven and huh, pun intended, woven throughout the novel, right? This idea that like, we, you know, we're not going to use cotton from the south. I did not know that was a thing. So I, I learned about history, but I also had to think about how people struggled to make that a part of their lives because it wasn't easy necessarily to have this huge boycott. And that is a great place to end because that is exactly what Beverly Jenkins hopes that readers get out of her books is that they learn something about Black history that they did not know about before. <laughs> so <laughs> it did its job. So that. All right. So we're going to go around and do a round of what we're reading, watching, eating, listening, whatever we're doing in these pandemic times. Uh, Todd, do you want to start us off? Yes, I am reading a, a very small book by Adrian Marie Brown called We Will Not Cancel Us and Other Dreams of Transformative Justice. And I just got this. I'm a huge fan of Adrian Marie Brown and her ideas of emergent strategy and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I've been reading her for a long time. And so I just got this. And this is kind of like a book about how we work with each other within movements, right? Like how um, how we sort of refrain from 
creating the kind of us and them kind of dynamic, um, both within and, with, and outside of movement. So, um, so I'm not that far into it, but I'm really liking it. But it is like it's a little pamphlet book kind of thing. It's maybe, I don't know, 80 pages, something like that. And you could mm-hmm. put it in your pocket. You know? Ooh, yeah, yes. cool like this. I like it. Yep. Thanks, Todd. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have been needing fantasy fiction recently, you know, witches, vampires, all the things that like I don't think are real. Um, so uh, I was introduced to A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness, and it is a lot of fun. It uh, The protagonist is um, hilariously a woman who's a witch but suppresses that and um, based, studies alchemy, and she decides she wants to be a professor at Yale. So she writes two books and gets tenure at Yale, which is already so very <laughs> unreal. <laughs> so and it just gets better from there with a vampire lover and um, all sorts of intrigue. Sounds fun. Thanks, Crystal. So it's um, very interesting, Todd, that you're reading um, Adrian Marie Brown because I'm reading um, a book that I mentioned in the podcast a long time ago, but it hadn't come out yet. It's Alexis Pauline Gum's Undrowned, Black mm-hmm. Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. And it is uh, published by AK Press. And so it's a part of the Emergent Strategy series. Oh. Um, and so this is this book is... Uh, it's so like I feel the book on like a visceral level because she's mm-hmm. writing about um, like lessons she's learned from her research and studying mammals, marine mammals. And one of the key points is about, you know, breathing underwater in the depths. Right. And so just thinking about lessons of learning how to breathe and how to survive in captivity under duress, um, it just, I love Alexis Pauline Gums anyway, and her writing is so, to me, so emotional. And so I was reading parts of this earlier this week and it's literally just weeping because I was like, I feel this on such a visceral level. Um, so I'm reading, I'm reading that now. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Crystal. Um, I did read Indigo by Beverly Jenkins. So also like, so that was the other book that I read along with um, Josephine. But um, um, my other shout out is that I've started to rewatch Queen Sugar with a friend um, Mm. after we made it through two seasons of The Mandalorian. Yay, baby Yoda, Grogu. Um, (laughs) So I'm looking forward to seeing like all the seasons of Queen Sugar kind of in a row because I think there's probably like a lot that I missed because I'd like I've forgotten the seasons before. Mm. So um, uh, and also it's just like visually just a stunning show like the people beautiful. are beautiful like the scenes of like New Orleans and St. Josephine are beautiful mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. like reappreciating that as I sort of rewatch that so yeah, yeah. where can you watch that Hulu. Where I, okay I want to watch that too because yeah, I'm that, yes been, we just finished the first two episodes so we can yeah I have a friend who's been on me to watch that forever and yeah I it's really good yet. Um, I will say when you get to this the current season they are in now, it's really hard to watch. Oh. You probably won't get to that now, okay. but it really it's hard to watch. Oh, so no. okay. Well, mm-hmm. thanks for the heads up. I guess it'll take us a while to get through the fourth season. Yeah. We'll be yeah. prepared for it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we are super excited to announce our next two books because next next time we're gonna be reading Sister Soldiers, the coldest winter ever. And we're going to follow that up with the sequel that just came out, Life After Death. So- You're welcome, America. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm so excited. We are super excited. Yes. Well, yes. I'm sort of like, yeah, what is coming. I am moved by everybody else's enthusiasm. So, so yeah. So, Sister Soldier is the coldest winter ever, followed by uh, Sister Soldier's Life After Death. So, that'll be our next two books. And don't worry. Yay. Don't worry. You think, like, oh, I might not like the first book, and then I would have to read the second book. And it's like, don't worry, because you're going to love the first book. Yes, you <laughs> are. It's not going to be a problem. It's not going to be a problem. It's not going to be a problem. Great. You're going to love it, and you're going to thank us. <laughs> promise. We'll we guarantee. Mm-hmm. What? what was that, I said we guarantee. Mm-hmm. All right. So, as always, you can find the podcast and iTunes, Stitcher, all the places where you uh, find podcasts. And also, please keep wearing those masks, washing those hands, and keeping those six feet away, even if you're getting vaccinated, because, you know, the virus is still circulating. So thank you all for listening, and we are sending out big virtual hugs to you all. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs) 
This has been another brand new episode of The Drip, recorded remotely from St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Northfield, Minnesota, and Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. The show is written, produced, and directed by Anita Chikatur, Adriana Estel, Crystal Moten, and me, Todd Lawrence. We are the All Spoilers Collective. Thanks to Lord Jordan X of Kansas City, Missouri for our theme music. We'll be back next month with a new episode on Sister Soldier's classic, The Coldest Winter Ever. Oh my God, you're going to love it. I know you're going to love it. Join us for that. And until then, please take care of yourself and look after each other. Peace.